It's good to know we have good elders here, isn't it? God bless our elders. Good morning. If you are visiting, we are glad you're here. What a morning. Lord, send your rain. Brad doesn't like to know what the message is going to be on Sunday, but he has an uncanny way of singing about the message before it even happens. Isn't that interesting? This morning, I want us to look at another prayer. We're in a series on prayer, and we're, whether you know it or not, we're working through different sections of the Bible, moving through the Old Testament right now, moving into the New Testament, and our aim as a community is to look at some really important prayers in Scripture and to cultivate a rich biblical theology of prayer and to give ourselves afresh to God in prayer. And today we're going to look at 1 Kings 18. So if you have your Bible, 1 Kings 18, 20 to 40. We'll come to that in just a moment. For some, it's a well-known story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. It's actually Baal, but we're going to say Baal in the more familiar pronunciation. And they're having a showdown on Mount Carmel. Next week, we're going to look at part two of the story, but today we're going to look at verses 20 to 40. This showdown between Elijah and the false prophets is familiar to some of us. Some of us a new story, but as we'll see, this narrative is full of wisdom and power. It's one that we can revisit time and time again. And as with any biblical story or text, we're asking two questions. The first is, what did it mean for them? And then in light of that, what does this story mean for us? And we have to always balance those things when we're meditating on scripture when we're looking into scripture. So the historical context is really important as well as our contemporary context. Before we start, I want to make a few points about this historical context. First, King Ahab and his wife, two of the the key players in this story, are attempting to replace the worship of the God of Israel with their own Phoenician gods, Baal and a goddess named Asherah. And they're both linked to fertility rites and rituals and some of these things as we'll see in a moment. Interestingly, Israel is in a three and a half year drought. We know before this passage in chapter 17. And the drought itself is judgment against Baal. If you remember the Exodus event, the Exodus story, each one of those plagues is a judgment against a different Egyptian god. So the frogs, the invasion of the frogs, for example, is a judgment against the god of frogs, actually. So what we're seeing here in this story is a judgment against Baal. If Baal is responsible for the rain, God shuts the heavens to show that Baal actually is no god at all. Jezebel, another story who's going to, another person who's going to factor into the story, personally persecutes and kills the prophets. An an infamous name, isn't it? Jezebel, we hear that name. So, it's important to see here that 
Jezebel comes to symbolize many things in subsequent generations and time. In 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19, we see that she symbolizes manipulative political power and control. She also, as we'll see shortly, symbolizes oppositions, opposition to the Lord's prophets. Later on in the New Testament, you can write this down and look at it later in Revelation 3, Jezebel represents some heavy stuff. False prophecy, idolatry, fornication, and the deep things of Satan. So, we must use caution here. I'm just talking about a little bit of historical context. The message of this story that we're going to look at in 1 Kings 18 is a story about the power of the God of Israel who hears prayers and magnifies his name. It's not a story about Jezebel. It's not a story about Elijah, for that matter. It's a story about the greatness of God. That's what we're going to meditate on together today. But to clarify some things about this character named Jezebel, it's important to look at some of this context. Pastorally, can I make a comment here? Sometimes people talk about the spirit of Jezebel, don't they? In light of some of these passages, we have to be really careful about such things. I am not saying that intercessors and others can't discern what's going on, but to use that lightly and loosely is not helpful, especially to women. The truth is, any of us, myself included, are susceptible to manipulating other people, to opposing God's work, including the gift of prophecy, or engaging in fornication, adultery, sex outside of marriage, these kinds of things. At our Lord's, we treat one another with respect and dignity and humility, don't we? We seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, leaving no room for influence of other spirits, including anything that hints of Jezebel. Right? You with me on that? So in view of these things, historical context is important here. Our focus today is on this amazing story of how Elijah, through prayer, battled the prophets of Baal that Ahab and Jezebel were promoting. So I want us to read this passage. It's rather long, but this is the word of God, right? So we're getting back into the practice of that, even bringing our Bibles. I urge you, some of you, bring your physical Bible. Some of you say, well, I don't even have that. It's all cyber. It's electronic. That is okay. I'm urging you, though, to bring your Bible so we can look at it together. You can thumb through it. You can make notes as we read this together. What we're going to see in this story today is that the answer to the schemes of Jezebel and Ahab lie in the power of God's presence. That's what this story is all about. We aren't preoccupied with the strategies of our spiritual enemy, ever, then or now. We're vigilant and aware of them, but we rivet our attention on God, the presence of God, the worship of God, prayer to God, the coming fire of the Lord's presence. That's what we focus on, not the schemes of the enemy, right? So as we look at this story, I want to point out four prophetic actions 
And then along with that, related to that, moments of reflection and wisdom for our community here. So four prophetic actions, and I want you to listen for them as we read, and then I'll go back and comment. And each Sunday, really, what we want to do moving forward is our time together in Scripture's meditation on the Word together, right? We read the story, then we reflect on it, glean some practical wisdom for, for the week. So 1 Kings 18, beginning at verse 20. I'll let you turn there. So Ahab sent to all the Israelites and assembled the prophets at Mount Carmel. Elijah then came near to the people and said, How long will you go limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets number 450. Let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire is indeed God. All the people answered, well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many. Then call on the name of your God, but put no fire to it. So they took the bull that was given them, prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, crying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, no answer. They limped about the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, surely he is a god. Either he is meditating, or he has wandered away, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Then they cried aloud, and as was their custom, they cut themselves with swords and lances until blood gushed out over them. As midday passed, they raved on, until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no answer, and no response. Then Elijah said to all the people, come closer to me. And all the people came closer to him. First, he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the 12 tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Then he made a trench around the altar, large enough to contain two measures of seed. Next, he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. He said, fill four jars of water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And again, he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time so that the water ran all around the altar and filled the trench also with water. At the time of the offering of the oblation, the prophet Elijah came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your bidding. Answer me, O Lord, 
Answer me so that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and even licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord indeed is God. The Lord indeed is God. Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. Then they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the wadi of Kishon and killed them there. Lord, I ask that you would help us as we meditate on this passage, that we would catch a vision of who you are, a consuming fire, and that you would work among us in these coming days, Lord. We welcome you. We want your consuming fire among us, Lord. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the first point here from this rather long passage, pretty interesting story there, isn't it? Fascinating story to read and reread. The first action that Elijah takes here is that he questions the people, and it becomes a moment, a time for soul-searching and decision. In verses 20 and 21, we read, about the place where all of this is happening, Mount Carmel. And we see that it's a story of an underdog here, isn't it? Very disproportionate. You've got one V450. How does that sound? One versus 450. What an uneven contest here. We learn that Isaiah asks this question, the pointed question, how long will you limp? How long will you hesitate? How long will you waver between these two different opinions? We'll see that word limp come up later. Interesting, the person who's crafting this story is referencing earlier stories. You remember the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There are some references to stories within this here. And there's echoes of language from even the book of Joshua. Joshua 24, 15 says, If you are willing to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you were living. But as for me and my household, Joshua says, we will serve the Lord. And there are echoes of that in this story here. Later on, Jesus says something that makes us feel rather uncomfortable. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for you will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So Elijah's addressing the same kind of wavering. You can't have it both way, both ways here. You, you either worship Baal or you worship the God of Israel. You know the right decision to make here. This text, I don't know about you, but I find it searching my heart. As I was spending time with it over the week, I found myself saying, where am I divided? What are those things that I'm holding on to that no one else knows about that I'm clinging on to, perhaps in my thoughts, perhaps in my heart, perhaps things that I'm attached to? And this prophetic word confronted me 
very strongly. It actually reminded me of 1987 when I was at a Billy Idol concert. We have some 80s fans in here. I was 17 years old, and I was at this concert, and man, was it a great concert. It was amazing. I was there with my friends. I'd been dating this young lady. Man, things were really good at 17 until the Lord interrupted the concert. Some people have asked me, does God really show up at a Billy Idol concert? And I say, you bet. The Lord was there. I got ambushed, and I had a moment where the Lord's presence came over me, and I knew I was at a fork in the road. I could continue to go down the road I was on, dating this young lady, engaged in some of the things I was, but I sensed the Lord saying, who do you want? Do you want this, or do you want me? And I, for the first time, I, re- I heard the Lord speaking to me internally, and I heard him say, take one step in my direction. And I did, and it was game over. The Lord just began to invade me and fill me with new appetites and desires. And so as I was pondering this, Elijah questioning the people, stop wavering. He's challenging them. I was reflecting on that. And I urge you, whatever there is, let this prophetic word search you out today. What can you give up? Not out of obligation or duty or because God's mad at you, but because God's in love with you. What can you give up so that it doesn't impair the love of God flowing into your life? God is the waterfall of love, and he's ready for you to sit under it. What's keeping you from getting under the waterfall? A second prophetic action here is found in verses 22 through 29. If you look at the the text there, Elijah challenges the opposition, these false prophets. And it's a time for spiritual confrontation. Elijah says at verse 22, I'm the only prophet. It's one verses 450. There's a prophetic underdog here in the story, isn't there? It goes on to explain in verse 23, some of this is strange stuff to our modern ears, isn't it? Bulls were typical animals that were used in sacrifice. And basically, Elijah is showing some etiquette here. He said, you get to pick the first one. You go first. And so they prepare their bull as a sacrifice. And he says, the point is, no fire here. There's no trickery at all. And we'll see the meaning of this later on. What's he say at verse 24? We will call on our gods and we'll see who answers by fire. In the Old Testament, we know that the fire represented what? We saw this last, last time in Exodus 33. What, is, what does fire represent? The presence of God, right? So you have the pillar of fire in the book of Exodus. And we have in other places in Scripture where it says that the Lord himself is a consuming fire. And so this motif, this theme of fire begins to emerge At verse 26, the prophets of Baal begin to cry out. And it says two different times, there's no voice and no answer. It's reminiscent of what Jeremiah will say. He'll make fun of the other gods, the local deities, and say, it's a piece of wood. It's a stone. Of course it's not going to answer you. It is not a true God. Unlike the living God of Israel, these 
are idols made in the minds of men. Verse 27 is rather alarming. Is this strange to you? Elijah begins to mock them. He's saying, keep crying. See if you can get Baal's attention. Good Jewish sense of humor. I love it. Then he says what? Maybe Baal is meditating. Maybe Baal's pondering something more important than you in this moment. There's a lot of sarcasm here. The second thing he says, maybe Baal is wandering around. This is actually a euphemism, a figure of speech that he's probably off looking for somewhere to go to the bathroom. That's what the Hebrew is suggesting here. So he's meditating. Maybe he's wandering, looking for a place to relieve himself. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's sleeping, and hopefully you can wake him up. So biting sarcasm here from the prophet Elijah. That is not excuse for some of us to use our sarcasm on family members and friends. This is a prophetic moment. Historical context is key, right? So you can't throw that up in the face of a family member and say, Elijah was sarcastic, so I'm going to be. That is not what we're saying. So they grow more desperate. Look at verse 28, 29. They're crying, they're cutting, they're raving. The word raving means prophesying. So they're shouting out loud in the name of Baal according to their customs and rituals. Again, no voice, no answer, no response a second time. It's quite pitiful and sad, isn't it? In in this moment here, unlike Elijah, for us, we never mock spiritual opposition. It is never a good idea to mock in prayer or to challenge someone and use sarcasm Never a good idea. We have healthy respect, don't we? Even our intercessors who are moving into places in prayer and all, there's never a sense of mocking things that are going on. So unlike Elijah, we're not doing that. But like Elijah, we have complete confidence in the power of God when we're engaging in spiritual warfare and all of these things. We've got to remind ourselves we're not demon chasers, we're God chasers. Right, that all, we're always keeping our attention on the Lord himself, not his opponents. Interesting story I heard this week, and it conveyed something. In recent weeks, I've been hearing stories from a number of you about confronting spiritual opposition. This week, I heard a story, and I have permission from Angie Payne to share. She was having some dreams about witches. They were getting ready to move into a new house, and a few days before that, she began to have these these dreams, vivid dreams. And shortly after that, they move into their new house, and some neighborhood kids are over playing at her house, and the neighborhood kids, interestingly, start mentioning the Ouija board that was in their house and how the previous kids played with this Ouija board, and Angie began to freak out a little bit, rightly so. So Angie called Amanda, my wife, and Bethany Kilman and Kelly Glass and asked them to come over to pray and worship through the house. And I thought it was a beautiful example of the Lord speaking through a dream to alert someone of what's going on, looking out for your kids, and then what was the response? Not to go and chase demons, but to bring the light to worship, to invoke the presence of God. And the presence of God is the one who drives spiritual opposition out. 
A third point here, very quickly, in verses 30 through 35, Elijah repairs the altar. He says in verse 30, come closer. You'll want a front row seat for this. And he repairs and heals the altar that was torn down by the prophets of Baal, the agents of Jezebel. It's interesting, the word for repair there is Rapha. You recognize that word? Jehovah Rapha. So what Elijah is doing here is healing the altar. In the power of Jehovah Rapha, he's coming in and bringing restoration and healing to the worship that had been impeded here. He repairs the altar. What's it say at verse 31? Very symbolic action here. He takes 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a prophetic act. And it symbolizes a renewal of their covenant with God. The recovery of the word of the Lord and their identity in God. So even by this action here, and even by the way the the language that's used in the text here, you're remembering Jacob. The great story of how Jacob wrestled with the Lord and got a new name. And the story is saying, this is your forefather. This is your heritage. Remember. Remember Jacob encountered God at Bethel. Jacob himself built an altar to signify, this is the place I encountered the revelation of God, the God of love, the goodness of God, the mercy of God. So the story is reminding him this. At verse 33, there's four jars filled with water. Essentially, this happens three times, and it's six gallons of water that's dumped out on this site here to prevent human manipulation, trickery. It's soaked so that no one could say this was rigged. It's interesting, though. It's rather odd. We're in a season of drought for how long? Three and a half years. So it doesn't seem like a very wise use of water, does it? Why would he take six gallons of precious water and pour it out? Some people think that he's suggesting the rain is coming. Water will be plentiful again. I love this. The early church fathers say that even here with the pouring out of water three times that it symbolizes baptism. It foreshadows baptism in the future when you're immersed three times in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A fourth prophetic action here, and we'll end with this. Verses 36 through 39. Elijah called on the Lord. It's a time for prayer, for revelation and heart change. At verses 36 through 37 we see Elijah's prayer sharply contrasted with the prophets of Baal. It's very different, isn't it? They were raving and trying to get God's attention and these various things. Baal, pay attention to us, please. Elijah, very collected. He appeals to God, doesn't he? There at verse 36. He's reminding himself and God. This is who you are. Reveal that you alone are God. He says it twice. An insight into prayer. Prayer is essentially reminding God of what he's promised and who he is and then reminding ourselves. That's one of the great secrets into Elijah's prayer here. Then he also says, Lord, remind them that you've turned their hearts back. And this is the essence of what true prophetic ministry does is turn our hearts to the Lord. We'll read later on in Malachi 4 that this is what Elijah stood for. Every time he showed up, every time the spirit of prophecy shows up, it turns people's hearts back to God. Turns people's hearts back to one another in healing. 
really the climax of the, the text here at verse 38. What happens? The fire of the Lord falls. Was this massive lightning, some kind of lightning bolt or fire from heaven? We don't know. Maybe a combination of both. But what we do know, Deuteronomy 4 says that the Lord is a consuming fire. So we do know that when he cried out, the Lord shows up. The Lord sends the fire. And it's a consuming fire. It devours everything. Again, the early church fathers looked at a passage like this and said it prefigures Pentecost. When the fire comes on the people of God and consumes them and changes the course of history. Lord, let the fire fall. How do the people respond at verse 39? The fire falls, and then what do they do? They fall. The fire falls, and then they fall on their faces. A sense of awe and humility and repentance, saying that the Lord is God, not Baal. I just want to propose today that really what we need is the fire to fall. Many of us have situations where we need the fire of God, and nothing else is working. Nothing else is working, so we need the fire of the Lord's presence. Before we end here, I want to make a comment at verse 40. This is troubling, isn't it? You see this great story, the Lord revealing who he is, the God of covenant and love and mercy and greatness. And then what does he turn around and have Elijah do? Slay the false prophets. This is shocking to modern Christians, is it not? When you heard me read it, was it kind of like fingers on a chalkboard? How do you explain that? It's an Old Testament directive in Deuteronomy 13. The penalty for false prophets was death. Modern scholars call this a text of terror. There are many of them in the Old Testament. Essentially, that means it can't be practiced in our own day. Thank God, right? So what can we glean from that? Again, some of the early church commentators proposed a spiritual interpretation They say that in a passage like this, you would never practice violence, but you would interpret it spiritually and turn into your own heart and use the sword of Scripture, the sword, the word of the Lord, on the own idolatry in your heart. That's the only thing that we're left with in a passage like this. Today we battle and conquer, not through a physical sword, but through love and prayer. The sword of the Holy Spirit, the sword of of the word of God, not physical force. I want to leave us with two things. Based on what we've seen in this story, I want to ask you to take action in two ways this week. I want to encourage you to give yourself to the consuming fire of the love of God. Pray this story. Take these 20 verses and say, Lord, I open myself up to the consuming fire of your love. Would you have me, body, soul, and spirit? I'm giving myself to you. The second thing here is I want to encourage you to place someone or a situation on the altar of the Lord. I've been doing this this week. I have three people that I've been placing on the altar and saying, Lord, I can't do anything in this situation. I can't work it. I can't coerce. I can't change someone's will. So I put them in the crosshairs of your love. 
I lay them on your altar, and would you take your fire and consume them and change them? As we finish up this morning, we have a story of someone who encountered the presence of the Lord through a prophetic word. So, Mike, why don't you come and share that? Chris, you want to come join me? There he is. Okay, so just to ground this very practically, uh, we're gonna, um, I'm going to have Chris Glasser. Um, some of you will know Chris and Abby. They've been here at the church for a number of years now. Um, just share briefly uh, at a moment he had with the Lord uh, several years ago. I'm just, we'll do it in interview form just to kind of keep it concise. Um, there's a lot we could say. But how we're going to respond to this and the reason that we're doing this is that I want to encourage you that the kinds of things that we've been reading about and hearing about from Brock are the kinds of things that God does here today amongst us. And he does break in and he does bring breakthrough into our lives. And so we're going to give some time to respond. There'll be the ministry team available. And uh, I'm sure the worship band will be back and we'll close out in worship together as well. So Chris, thanks for coming this morning and thanks for being willing to share. I wonder just as a way of starting, if you could tell people a little bit about where you were, I mean, it's probably about a little over five years ago when you came to visit and um, what life was like then. So probably, yeah, a little over five years ago, I was dealing with uh, a lot of anxiety and, and panic attacks, which I've dealt with my entire life, uh, really. And, you know, my wife and I, we were newly married and it was kind of affecting anything that I wanted to do in life as far as uh, playing soccer, my marriage with my wife. Uh, we wanted to start a family, but just where I was at that time, like that was just, it was consuming every thought of every day. Yeah. The anxiety and, and the panic. I would go to work, come home. That's the first thing I would be doing. I'd be like I thought I was sick, you know, and uh, so it was just affecting, you know, my marriage and and, and basically everything. Yeah. So you were in a pretty dark place, and then one Sunday you came to visit here, and I wonder if you could just describe briefly a little bit what what God did, kind of on that Sunday. So uh, I was pretty desperate at this point, and Abby's sister actually was going to. To our Lord's, we weren't we weren't going here, um, and I was willing to try anything. And she said, "You know, why don't you come to to church at our Lord's on Sunday, and you can go get some prayer." And at that time, you know, where I was in my my walk with the Lord, I was kind of like, "Eh," you know, like. But I was like, Let, "Let's give it a go and see what happens." So, come on Sunday. Um, with my wife, and I'm I, I'm coming already, knowing that I'm gonna I'm gonna go get some prayer, regardless. And uh, and then Mike gets up at the end of service and has a word that there is an individual wearing a a blue sweater with dark hair and is dealing with some sort of pain. And uh, me and my wife just kind of look at each other and start laughing because you know I was. That was me. I was wearing that blue sweater, dark hair, and I was uh, in a pretty bad spot. So, just uh, just briefly describe what God did, kind of when you came forward for prayer, just so people get a sense of that. 
So I came up and received prayer, um, and both Mike and Jennifer gave, uh, laid hands on me, um, brought down some walls, and started that restoration process for me. And uh, it was it was it was amazing. It was awesome. So tell us, uh, this is obviously it's over five years ago, but like immediately there were some changes, and then maybe just talk a little bit as you kind of. Describe what God did in terms of the moment, but even now, just what he's stirring in you. That'd be great. Yeah, so I don't think what happened then, I think, had to have happened for the things that are going on now. And I, um, as far, you know, a few weeks ago, I mean, I, we, me and my wife were kind of having a hard time with, you know, getting into the word and in a good place with the Lord. But uh, a few weeks ago, we just started to feel this, the fire coming back again. And I think without those things that happened then, I wouldn't know how to deal with them now. Um, so I just think this restoration process is continuing. Um, and we're, I know my wife and I are super excited uh, to be able to, like with two little girls now, there would have been no way back then I would have been able to handle that stuff, you know, without. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, there's nothing, you know, like, I'll be, yeah. Share about the anxiety changes, kind of. Yeah, so since then, the anxiety has, I mean, I haven't had a panic attack or anxiety since then. Uh, yeah, it's good. You know, I can, I can, I can live life and, and can play soccer and, you know, and coach soccer and get into it without thinking I'm going to, you know, have a heart attack or something, so. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Just stay here for a second. So, I wanted I wanted you guys to hear something in that. In that, um, there's a there's a moment there where God breaks in and does something, and we don't get to control what God does, but we can put ourselves in a position where we can ask Him to move. And so, if you find yourself in a situation this morning. Um, Maybe it's different circumstances to what Chris has described, but you're aware, um, I just need God to break in and do something. Um, we'd love to pray for you. Just as I talk here, if the ministry team would come up and be available, just down here to the right and the left. I know that Brad and the band are just going to play in the background while we, um, we pray for one another. Why don't you guys stand up as well? You've been sat for a while. And I want to, um, Kelly, I think you have a couple of things. Do you want to share those? Is that all right? If there's, a, as Chris mentioned, there was a sense of an individual um, kind of direction that helped him to know that God wanted to meet with him. And uh, Kelly's going to share a couple other things like that for this morning. Yeah, it's interesting. I had no idea you were going to share that testimony. But as I was walking into church, I was so drawn that there's so many people in this bright blue shirt, this bright blue color. Um, and I just heard really simply God saying, um, there's blue skies ahead. And I felt like maybe even, I don't know if it's for the whole group of anyone who has that color on or an individual that you've even said the phrase, like, there's just this dark cloud, that, this little rain cloud that follows me around. And I just saw God saying, um, just parting the clouds and saying there's blue skies ahead. So that is interesting. I feel like that's really on God's heart to pray for depression and anxiety. And, um, and then I saw... Um, the right knee, like a knife just going into the side of the knee and like a stabbing pain. And then um, someone who's had nerve damage that affects your hands and you need your hands for your work or your hobby um, and that your fingers have been affected by nerve damage. 
So let's do this. If you re- relate to any of those things specifically, I would encourage you to come. Come now, don't delay. Um, if you want prayer for anything this morning, you're welcome to come. We'd love to pray with you. Also, uh, Steve Marcus is over to my left and serving communion. You're welcome to do that. Let's close out and worship and pray for one another and respond to God. One last word uh, was also given to me, uh, polycystic ovarian disease, quite a specific word there. So if that does relate to you, we'd love to pray with you. Thanks, guys.